you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. During Sunday school, the teacher asked her class of first graders if anyone could describe a Christian. A little boy quickly raised his hand and stated, Christians are nice people who never complain, argue, or talk back. He then added, my daddy is a good Christian, but my mommy isn't. It's a humorous story, but it does tell us in simple terms that we all have a testimony. And the question is, what is that testimony? If someone were to ask, who is this person, and they described you, what would they say? Would they describe you as somebody that you would want to be described as? Or would you be somebody that is known as a bad or poor testimony before others? We all have a testimony, and our testimony either confirms our faith in Christ or denies our faith in Christ. The greatest witness or testimony is God himself, though. And today we'll be looking at two things. Number one, the witness of deity, verses 6 through 8. And number two, the witness of faith, verses 9 through 12. Let's start with number one, the witness of deity, verses 6 through 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. What we see here in this text is there are three witnesses testifying of Christ. Number one, the water. Number two, the blood. And number three, the spirit. Now, as you dig into this and you read commentators on this and just different takes on what is meant by this, you'll see some views on Jesus coming by water and blood. And here are some of them. Number one, water and blood are simply a reference to the water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side when one of the soldiers pierced him. Uh, this view is held by Augustine. Um, this doesn't seem to give understanding to the point of the text of how Jesus actually came, though. So if we're not addressing that in question, then I don't think that view really could, can hold. Number two, water and blood are a picture of the Christian. I think this is, a, this is a common one that people have brought up. It's more of a sacraments or ordinances of baptism and communion for believers. This is held by Luther and Calvin. If this is how Jesus came, it doesn't seem to directly correlate, though, to the present, right? This is talking about how Jesus came. Um, it doesn't talk about us, necessarily, so I don't know how that could hold in this text. Number three, water and blood are simply a picture of Jesus' humanity, being born of water as a man and dying by blood as a man. Jesus is essentially just a man giving him no supernatural claim. This would be something that Gnostics would love as a position. Uh, this would be an outright denial of his very deity. So I don't know that, that that view holds. And number four is water and blood is connected to Jesus' baptism, water, and his dead, blood. His death, sorry, blood. This view is more than likely the oldest recorded by Tertullian as well. Let's take a look actually at verses that connect this and see which view really holds. How does Christ connect with blood and, and the spirit? Well, let's take a look at water first. Back in John chapter 1, and you have to understand one of the benefits of cross-referencing words 
is if you use the same author, you tend to see a little more of how they use the word in the writings. So John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, here's what it says. The next day John, uh, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So we see there a reference to water, specifically to the water of baptism, when John is presented with the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb who is to take away the sin of the world. Well, let's look at blood. In John chapter 19, verses 33 through 35, it says this, And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, that would be the soldiers, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. So we see here that there's, there's a reference right here to the blood of Christ, which is shed on our behalf, and the soldier himself sees this. And it says specifically in verse 35, that those saw this testified, and the testimony is true. This is a testimony that is a reference to the Holy Spirit calling us to this attention. The Holy Spirit himself is also mentioned in John chapter 15. John 15, 26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, that is of Christ. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning, which would have been the beginning of Christ's ministry. The water and the blood seems best explained as a reference to Jesus' baptism and death. When Jesus was baptized, he identified with us, though not sinful, himself. When we come to saving faith and are baptized, we are identifying with him, though we are not sinless as he is. Jesus identified with us so that one day we could identify with him. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, and I know we're very familiar with this verse. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By referring to Jesus' baptism and death, John is placing those two events as the bookends to Jesus' earthly ministry. Bat baptism, crucifixion. The Spirit was there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he is there at the end with his completion of death on a cross, burial, and resurrection. It seems to be the most straightforward approach as we look at this text. And also what John brings up as evidence for Christ. In fact, when you look at the nation of Israel when it comes to the Holy Spirit, in Matthew 12, the nation of Israel blasphemes the Spirit in their rejection of Christ. In John 14 through 16, we see the Spirit's role is to testify of Christ. 
And in Hebrews 2.4, the apostles performed miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. You would think that this would be probably the harder part to put together in this text. But unfortunately, one of the most disputed texts of Scripture is the one that's found in the next verse. 1 John 5, verse 7. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. The Johannine comma is apparently in only three Greek manuscripts. Comma is the Greek word for clause. Most commentators believe that this verse should not be included in your Bible. I don't know if you realize that. Which makes for preaching through the book of 1 John very controversial for some. This verse does make perfect sense in the context, if you look at it. We're going to be looking at the arguments for and against this text from scholars. And I will do my best to clearly show why I believe this text still belongs in this context. Some of the arguments against including 1 John 5-7 are as follows. Number one, in most early church theological debates regarding the Trinity, which we'll discuss here in a moment... This text was not quoted by them. Number two, the only early translation that included this verse was the Latin Vulgate, not the other translations. If you look into that more historically, that's actually not accurate. Number three, this was more than likely added by a textual scholar who wanted to emphasize the doctrine of the Trinity and bolster the argument. So these are kind of the main points that are used to state that 1 John 5, 7 should not be included in our Bibles. In fact, some versions will literally have it to the side, say, it's not included in the earliest manuscripts, but here it is for you to see it. Now, what are the arguments for including 1 John 5, 7? Number one, there is evidence that this text was quoted by early church fathers. So contrary to the take that, that it wasn't, there is actually quite a bit of evidence that it was. By, by, by Cyprian in 250, listen to what he says. Tell me if this doesn't sound like in a direct quotation of this text. The Lord warns, saying, He who is not with me scattereth. He who breaks the peace in the concord of Christ does so in opposition to Christ. He who gathereth elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ. The Lord says, I and the Father are one. And again, it is written of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. There's also a quote by Eugenius at the Council of Carthage in 485 AD. And in order that we may teach until now, more clearly than light, that the Holy Spirit is now one divinity with the Father and the Son Listen to what he says. It is proved by the evangelist John, for he says, there are three which bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Direct quote of 1 John 5, 7. It's not even a paraphrase. It's a direct quote of 1 John 5, 7. Another reason for including 1 John 5, 7, I believe, that follows is this passage seems overly redundant and repetitious if one were to remove 1 John 5, 7. 
If you include verse 7, you see a clear contrast between a witness in heaven and on earth. You also see a contrast further along in the text of the witness of men and a witness of God. So let's, let's actually read the verses without that verse included and then with it included and see if you can pick up on this. So verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now listen to it with the contrast, including verse 7. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. You see the contrast that's built there once you include verse 7. That is lacking if you just went from verse four, uh, five, right, uh, 6 to verse 8. Number 3, argument 4 including this verse. The words, this is probably the, the, the case that I believe the strongest. Though the, the quotes directly from the early church fathers really helps build it. I think number three is the one I probably will say with number four are probably my strongest arguments for why I believe that they should be included. The words used in verse seven are clearly the types of words John would have used. Especially in reverence, uh, reference to the divine. Notice what John says. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. The word is the word only used by John to declare that Christ is in his divinity. Going back to John chapter 1. When John tells us the same thing that he does in 1 John chapter 1 as well. That the word became flesh. That the word we witness with our very eyes. That is something only John would use as a word. A scholar would have added probably something that most of us would have copied and pasted, right? Instead of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, they would have put the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? They would have switched that second word to the Son. And number four, which I think is probably the most crucial argument for including this, and it sometimes is diminished today because we have so many textual critics that want to blast away at the Bible thinking that, as long as I can go ahead and dissuade people from this, then I can dissuade them from other positions. And I, and I will say this, church, this right here is the one that a lot of people mock the most. This argument is the one that people mock the most. Because as soon as they can get you to doubt this text is the Bible, they can get you to doubt any text in the Bible, should be there or shouldn't. Number four is, God promises to preserve his word. Believer, if you don't believe that, then you can't hold to Christianity the way you ought to. If one were to cast doubt on this text, why should we hold any other text with authority? This is essentially the lie right in the beginning, right? Did God really say that? Right? Isn't that the lie that Satan perpetrated? 
God didn't really mean that. I don't think this is a small text to avoid in the Bible. This is a pretty critical text to make sure you pay attention to. This essentially is where many go down the path of rejecting the authority of Scripture and refer to Scripture as a good book that's helpful to our lives. That's a lot of progressive churches today. You won't even hear a conversation about this in that church because it's just avoided altogether. We just don't worry about these debates. We avoid them entirely. Never mind the fact that the church has argued about them for centuries. So this is the background to why the, the, the verse should be included or not based on what the arguments are. And I believe clearly that it should be included. Now to the text itself. Let's actually do the exposition. The three bearing witness in heaven. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Believer, the Trinity is probably one of the hardest truths and doctrines to grasp, but it is an essential to the Christian faith. It is not discussed by many due to the difficulty of fully grasping this truth. To get even more than what we expound on today, I really want to strongly recommend that you visit our website, sgcspringfield.org, click on what we believe, just actually click on those words, and you will see a full breakdown of all of this and a lot more. I don't have enough time this morning to cover everything. Click on the tab, what we believe. We will read both the Nicene and Athanasian, Athanasian creeds as they are still the best statements on this important doctrine. And we'll make a few comments. The Nicene Creed states the following. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Church, one of the reasons why this doctrine is not discussed in churches today is because people have ultimately abandoned the creeds. They've abandoned what the church has already spelled out clearly. And for many today, they want an easy text to deal with. And God is saying, I'm more than a simple text. I'm God. I'm above all of you. I am different than all of you. I'm creator, your creation. 
To understand me, it's going to take a lot more than a simple three-point outline. The truth of the Trinity is one that so many today cannot expound on or even really believe as they should because they don't understand it nor do they care to understand it. Many do not even attempt to go through this doctrine. And church, I really want to strongly encourage you if you're someone that says, look, this is a little harder than normal for me. I'm not sure that I grasp this. Realize that great men and women have struggled with it just as you can. And realize that that's something you don't just give up on and go, I can't fully grasp it, so I'm out. I mean, have you ever considered the incredible truth of eternity? Have you just stopped and thought, eternity, what is that really like? Because we are so start and stop in our lives, aren't we? We are born and we die. Now translate to eternity, something that never stops. And then go back and say, God who never began. Isn't that fascinating? Now try to wrap your mind around that as a human. You can't. It truly is true what scripture says, right? When it says, his ways are higher than our ways. Just, his thoughts are not our thoughts. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to understand him more. Learn about him more. An important point is to be made here is that there is but one God who exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, or the Word, as John calls him, and the Holy Spirit. But there is but one God. The tension many cults have when it comes to the Trinity is that many paint God inaccurately, incorrectly. To the Jewish mind, Jesus can't be God. He can't be. To modalists, God just takes on different forms throughout history. And you have to understand something, believer, that these arguments, these debates, people have gone on before you and me and have already thought through these. You don't have to come up with new arguments today. And a lot of the arguments that people come up with today are, are just ridiculous, and they don't make any sense. Trying to show the Trinity by using a three-leaf three leaf clover just doesn't work, folks. There's a lot that's missing in that example. Let's also read the Athanasius Creed to further clarify. Or Athanasian, I should say. Whoever, whoever wishes to be saved must above all else hold the true Catholic faith. Now here's what's amazing. They start off by saying this is important. And what they mean by Catholic is the universal church, the church of Christ, the living church, the church that believes what God says. Listen to what they say. Whoever wishes to be saved must above all else hold the true Catholic faith. Whoever does not keep it in whole, it whole and undefiled will know without doubt perish for eternity. Listen to what it said next. This is the true Catholic faith, that we worship one God in three persons and three persons in one God. That's a truth that cannot be debated. If you want to call yourself an Orthodox believer or a Catholic, according to this passage that they're claiming. 
To be a part of the member of Christ, church, you need to hold to this. This isn't optional. This isn't one of those things where I don't really want to take the Trinity. Because if you don't believe Jesus is God, you've already lost Orthodox Christianity. If you believe that God just took on different forms rather than existing in three persons, you've already left Orthodox Christianity. Without confusing the persons or dividing the, the divine substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is still another. But there is one Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. What the Father is, that is the Son and that is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is unlimited, the Son is unlimited, the Holy Spirit is unlimited. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Just as there are not three who are uncreated and who are unlimited, but there is one who is uncreated and unlimited. Likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet there are not three who are almighty, but there is one who is almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For just as we are compelled by Christian truth to acknowledge each person by himself to be God and Lord, Listen to what they say next. So we are forbidden by the Christian religion to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten by anybody. The Son is not made or created, but is begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father and not three fathers, one Son and not three sons, one Holy Spirit and not three Holy Spirits. And among these three persons, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But all three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And accordingly, as has been stated above, three persons are to be worshipped in one Godhead. And one God is to be worshipped in three persons. Whoever wishes to be saved must think thus about the Trinity. Do you notice all the technical language that they spell out? This is who God is. This is who God isn't. And they give you back and forth the comparisons. Because a lot of false teaching had already crept in. And the church had to find, if you will, the truth for the whole. Because there was a lot of corruption that had gone on in the churches. Men had to come together and, if you will, hash out all these different things and find, hey, this is a heresy right here that's been introduced. We need to stand against that. Believer, if you come to somebody else that tells you that Jesus is just God who took on that form and then he took on the form of the Holy Spirit, you have modalism. You don't have 
the Trinity as God describes in his word. God is not changing faces. The God of the Old Testament is not God the Father who then turns into God the Son, who then turns into the Holy Spirit, and he's going to turn back into the Son. That's not how it works. That is not biblical teaching. And these are areas that we need to be very careful. Just because someone claims to know God does not mean that they know the God of the Bible. There are so many that try to be cute in explaining the Trinity by referring to the doctrine with metaphors that can't fully explain it correctly. Now, having read many different commentators and books, including Augustine on the Trinity, I tell you right now, the creeds are by far the most clear and precise explanation you will find out there. If you really want to stretch your mind, go take a look at what Augustine says on the Trinity. You will be scratching your head trying to connect it all, reread it again, still don't get it, because there's so much there to still dig. There's a short video online that demonstrates the inaccuracies of the Trinity, and it's actually a pretty interesting cartoon. It's called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. I would recommend you actually take a look at that. I'll be posting that later on. It's an excellent little video clip that talks about the different ways that people are off in their understanding of the Trinity. And that many times the best way is just to go right back to the creed, read it for what it says, and start connecting the dots all over again. As mentioned before, it is important to understand what you believe, believer. And believe me, this is an area that's a challenge for many believers. I would also recommend to you the book, The Forgotten Trinity by James White. It truly is a doctrine that has been forgotten in the church today. Do I believe that everybody thinks of the Trinity all the time, understands the Trinity all the time, and is, they're not saved automatically? No, what I do say is this. If you don't consider the Trinity, that you're not considering an important truth of the, the Word of God. As mentioned before, it's important to understand what you believe. So here's a, here's a challenge for you, church. If someone were to ask you to show them in the Bible how you can determine that God the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit, could you be able to show them if they gave you a Bible right now? Not look it up on Google, which I think is an easy default for all of us. But take your Bible in your hand and show them where Scripture clearly states that God the Father is God, the Son, Jesus, is God, and the Holy Spirit. I think the Holy Spirit actually is probably the hardest for most people. And there's a very explicit statement. And if you want a hint, I'll let you know. It's really with Ananias and Sapphira. Clearly states that the Holy Spirit is God. Because they sinned against God. The reason this is so important, church, it's important to study, is because it connects to your witness of faith. Number two, witness of faith, verses 9 through 12. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony 
that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The Father's witness of the Son is greater than any of the apostles having seen him firsthand. What Scripture clearly teaches us of who Jesus is is more important than someone's experience of how they saw God in the books that so many people produce today. It was in a dream, and God appeared to me and told me. It doesn't hold a candle to what Scripture clearly reveals. It doesn't even come close. The sure word of prophecy is found in the Son, and that Son is declared in this word. The eyewitness account of even John pales in comparison to the truth that the Father revealed of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. This person that has placed their faith in Christ has the Holy Spirit residing in them. The Holy Spirit confirms to us that we are God's. He bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And notice what else he says. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. This is obviously in reference to not believing that Jesus is who he is as Messiah, as God. When a person rejects the gospel message, they are essentially telling God that he's lying about certain things. He's lying about the Son, Jesus. He's not who he's said to be. Oh, Jesus was a good teacher. He taught us a lot of stuff, how to be good to our neighbor. But Jesus got, no, no, rejecting that. Putting too much on that claim. When a person rejects the gospel message, they're telling God that he's lying about the gift. Eternal life. It can't be for me. And some will go a step further. We don't even exist after this. There's no life after death. When a person rejects the gospel message, they also reject their condition. A sinner who needs grace. I'm good. I don't need your God. I'm fine on my own. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing better than Christians are. I don't need them. I don't need you. Pretty good on my own. Version says, the great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenure of Scripture, unbelief is the giving of God the lie, and what can be worse? You're calling God a liar. You're calling God a liar by refusing to believe what he clearly states. The ones that have the Son have life. This passage is written to believers that already possess life. Which means that it is something you and I need to constantly keep remembering. Because we have a tendency of forgetting the obvious, don't we? The things that you're so used to, you tend to forget many times. 
It's almost autopilot in our faith sometimes. In everyday life, we forget things we ought to know due to the familiarity that we have with them, don't we? Think about it practically, believers. We forget to pay our bills sometimes, right? Because we forgot when it was due. We should know better. We've already paid that bill so many times. How did we forget it? We did. We forget that project we said we were going to do. Not for you to have an argument with your spouse later. Right? This is just as an illustration. Right? Until someone reminds us again, right? We forget the project until someone reminds us, hey, you said you were going to do this. And you didn't do it. And we knew we were supposed to do it, right? Like it was just an obvious, we've kind of known that that's supposed to be done. Sometimes we forget to give, though we know we ought to, right? Like we didn't plan to give because we forgot to. So instead, we complained about the money being tight and we realized that, wait a second, this might have a connection. Oh, yeah, I remembered. God says that if I do this, he promises some things. Okay, I'll do it. And then we forget again. Here's a big one. We forget to spend time with our loved ones, right? We know we ought to. It's kind of like the thing everybody talks about. Right, right? Like we even have sentimental things that everybody reminds us of. Live every moment like it's your last. Right? All this stuff. And what do we do? Do we do that? No. We get so caught up in all the other stuff, right? We get so busy in all the things. We assume that there's always another day to do that, right? Like, I will spend time with my family three months from now when I get through all this stuff. We forget our time with God. We forget to pray and seek God's face. We think we'll simply establish that habit another day, don't we? I'll start tomorrow. I know I haven't been doing it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm busy today. i got a lot going on. God, don't mind me. I will get to you tomorrow. Believer, just like no one can spend time with your family on your behalf, no one can study, pray, or read the Bible on your behalf either. That's something you need to do. It's a choice you need to make. Stop piggybacking off of others thinking their quality time with God counts as your quality time with God. It doesn't. As great as Spurgeon is, he established his own walk with God and so should you. There are too many Christians today that claim to walk with God when all they do is quote others who have walked or are currently walking with God. God is not going to be impressed with us quoting a bunch of good men and women that have gone before us if we ourselves have not pursued him. We stand before Christ if we can quote certain things that people have said to us. It's not enough if we didn't spend the time ourselves. You can be benefited by others' walk with God, sure. But their walk with God is not your walk with God. God wants you to personally walk with him. And yes, bring others with you in community as well. Which is one of the reasons why discipleship works that way. When you walk with God, you bring another believer in with you to walk with God. And together, you walk with God more faithfully and consistently than you do on your own. Ask yourself how more consistently you are with your Bible reading if you have other people holding you accountable than if you're doing it on your own. And I'll tell you right now, even as a pastor, it's much easier if somebody else is around me. Around me. 
Are you saying I, that you lack self-discipline, Pastor? No. I'm just saying that I know how community works and God established it that way. Unfortunately, what most don't realize is community needs to be that way. There needs to be an edifying of one another, admonishing one another. Because on your own, you're just not going to make it. The personal needs are to be met in the community of Christ. And those are met much better when the church understands, hey, you know what, we all need to be in the word. It's no accident, church, that I ask of you to read the Bible. I don't do it to do a benefit for me. Although it is a benefit to me. Because if you read the Bible, it actually takes care of a lot of problems in the church automatically. Do you know that? The anxiety levels go down with a lot of you. The stress goes down. Marriages are better. Parenting is better. The relationships between each other are much better. Because you know what's hard to do? Is explode on somebody when you've read in the Bible that Jesus came and he loved you compassionately. When you read text in scripture that says, encourage one another so much when you see the day approaching. Admonish one another. John finishes here, though, with the ultimate confidence booster. He says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The testimony or witness of God himself is what you can rest your assurance on. What God promises he will deliver. God has your future intact, believer. Just as much as he has your present. Did you know that? Why do so many of us really believe him for the future, but we can't trust him today? Like, God, I believe you when I'm done with this life. I don't believe you today. I believe when it's my last breath that I will enter glory with you. But today, I'm not trusting you. It's stunning. So many Christians say they trust God with their souls, but they won't trust him in their daily lives. In a case brought before the court, you would need the account of two or three witnesses. Well, here in this text, we have the Father, the Son, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. They are more than enough to provide confidence that has been said regarding our salvation, that we have assurance. Think of it this way, believer. If God made it a point to have Jesus enter human history when he did, to have him die on a cross, to re-resurrect it, to ascend. And you know what the response of the disciples is? The response that typically we all have, right? We just stare as Jesus is going away. When the angels are saying, go, do what God's told you to do. Don't just be in awe of what's been done. Do something with what's been done. There's so many that use the spiritual lingo. God is so amazing. He's done so many things in my life. And what is that doing in your practical life? Stop talking and start doing. You have a witness as well. Your life is to be a testimony. You can have assurance. 
because of the work of the triune God. John says here that he wrote this so they can have assurance. John's like, I'm not wasting your time. I'm writing this so you see that you can be assured of your salvation. You can have confidence. And yet, why do so many not? Well, one thing for sure, if you didn't read this text, you wouldn't. This was written for you to have confidence. John's saying that he wrote this so they can have assurance, and we can have assurance, so that we can continue to believe. Faith needs to persevere, believer, and not stall out. So many of us start like a strong engine, then we just completely die out to like two cylinders. That's our faith. It's not active. You remember when you had more passion for Christ? Go back there. Go back there. Trust him once again. Remember when you were more excited about what God has done for you and it really impacted some things? Go back. You shouldn't be living in a hope-so faith, believer. You should be living in a no-so faith. I hope everything works out in my life. No, you should know it will work out in your life. Because God has already promised that. John has given us tests throughout this book to see how we're doing in our testimony of faith. So in conclusion, I want to ask. Ask yourself this question. What is your testimony? What is your testimony? We could all come up with words to describe our testimony or witness before God and others. The following that I'm about to present to you is not meant to be a beating rod, but rather an encouragement to strive for more in your faith so that you can have assurance and confidence, believer. This is not a perfect list, as some authors will have some points that they combine and, and separate even further. Um, but I think they're a helpful checkup for us in our testimony or the test of faith, if you will, in our lives in 1 John. Here they are, and I will actually probably send you all a PDF later on with these. Number one, fellowship with God and the saints. How you doing in that? How you doing in actually making sure that fellowship is a priority to you? Not just to others, but to you. 1 John 1, 3. Number two, walking in the light. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. Do you know where you're going in your faith? Are you kind of just meandering around, kind of trying to figure all this stuff out? Number three, confession of sin. When was the last time you confessed sin before God? And I don't mean in a haphazard, Lord, forgive me again, my attitude. I'm talking like you actually confessed and you really meant it. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. Number four, obedience. 1 John 2, 3 through 5, 229, 324. Are you known as someone that's obedient to the words of Scripture? Is that your testimony? Number five, believe it or not, is mentioned a lot more than you would think. Love for the brethren. 1 John 2, 9 through 11, 314, 411, 5, chapter 1. Uh, 5, chapter 5, verse 1. 
All of these texts tell you that this is a big deal to God in your testimony, in your test of faith. How's your love? Is it growing for other people in the church? Has it stalled out or is it growing? Number six, opposition to the world, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do people know that you don't link arms with people in the world that oppose God? Do people know that there's a difference between you and them in the way that you practice your faith? That doesn't mean that you, know, you can't have the same donut someone else has. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is when things are in opposition, direct opposition to God, you're not going to stand with them. You're not going to go to that event that you know opposes God. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Number seven, striving for purity. 1 John 3, 3. Are you a person that's known to be pure before God and others? Do you strive for that? Are you going to hit the mark every time? No, but do you strive for purity? I know we always, our minds kind of go to sexual purity, like the big thing if we grew up in church. But that's purity in other things as well. Are you pure in how you deal with your money? Are you pure in the way that you interact with other people? Do you have the right intentions when you want to present God to others? Number eight, practicing what you preach. 1 John 3, 18 through 19. Do people know you as someone that tells others what you yourself do? Do you practice what you preach? Do you tell others what you yourself do? If correcting another brother or sister, you're actually practicing what you're telling them. Like, brother or sister, your marriage is off here. You know, listen, I want to help you out. Like, are you doing that? Or are you willing to offer advice in areas you're not really willing to live? Number nine, a clean conscience. 1 John 3, 21. I don't know about you, but this is one of the biggest ones for me. Clean conscience puts so many things at ease. You can live more freely if you have a clean conscience. What's dangerous is when you have a seared conscience. When nothing bothers you anymore. When you do things that are dishonoring to God and you could care less that you did them. Number 10, biblical discernment. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. So many of us are introduced to all sorts of authors in Christianity. Are you discerning? Do you discern from the false teaching and the true? We talked about one big thing today was the Trinity. Please pay attention to how people talk about God. And if you have a question, bring it up to leaders in the church about that. Make sure that you know what you're talking about and that you know where you stand. There's a reason why the doctrinal statement that we have on our website is as detailed as it is. It's there to help you discern truth from error. You're not going to be able to go through that all at one time with a lot of detail for yourself and remember all of it. But I promise you it's there for your resource. Number 11, Spirit's leading, verse John 4, 13. Do you, get, do you find yourself led by the Spirit or your own desires all the time? Do you find that when God moves, you know it's Him and you're going to go? You truly are a Spirit-led Christian. Number 12, love conquering fear. We just talked about this recently. 1 John 4, 17 through 19. Do you find that love eliminates a lot of the fear in your life? God's perfect love eliminates a lot of that fear in your life. 
you live with a lot more confidence because you're not afraid. God has already got it all under control. You already overcome because of what Christ has done. Number 13, alignment with God's will. 1 John 5, 14. Do you want God to align with what you want or do you align to what he wants? Do you make it a priority to say, you know what, God, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to do this next thing, but I want you to show me and I'm going to listen and I'm going to obey. Alignment with God's will is a lot harder than it seems. Because it isn't just knowing what the Bible says. Alignment means that you're going to do what the Bible says. And number four, maintaining discipline. 1 John 5, verse 18. A believer, I'll say this. I think this is one of the areas that today in Christianity is lacking tremendously. A lot of people want to live for God without maintaining discipline in their Christian life. And then they wonder why everything falls apart. They wonder why things are going the wrong way. They wonder why they end up where they do. It is not easy to maintain discipline. In fact, that's part of what it means to be a disciple. Because you are to have discipline. And let me encourage you on one thing. You can never be a good disciple of Jesus Christ on your own. To maintain discipline, you need accountability in your life. And I need accountability in my life. You need to have people, brothers and sisters, that can come up to you and say, hey, brother, sister, here's what's going on. Um, I've noticed. Are you doing all right? And your res first response should be like, Psh, don't tell me. I already know. You should take that as encouragement that someone cares enough for you on that. And your goal should be to live upright before God, maintain discipline so that you can help someone else that might be lacking in discipline. Not in a judgmental way, but in a truly, hey, here's what's worked for me. I promise you, if you eliminate this thing, it'll help some of these spiritual disciplines in your life. Believer, the Godhead is at work in our lives to bring us to assurance. God does not leave us guessing what will bring it about. He shows us what will. John wrote these things to give us assurance. Not to cause us to doubt, but to give us assurance. The enemy will always want you to doubt God's word. The enemy will take God's promise of encouragement and a future and says, you know what? That's for other believers that are living a lot better than you are. And God's saying no. That's even for the most disobedient disciple. I have things in store for you as well. And I want you to live not in fear, but out of this love that I have for you, that you're going to live in love for me. God doesn't want us to be terrified of him. He's a father that loves his children. A father that loves his children so much that he gives of his own son so you can become a child of his and a son and daughter of his. Don't be so concerned about everyone else's witness, believer. Check yourself and your testimony against the standard here that John sets for us. 